we will move right on to our first speaker, Luke Morris, who after planting, pruning, picking, plunging, pumping, pressing, packing, pouring and promoting everything to do with wine, Luke wrote silly short stories for the stage. He is now a student of psychological sciences, and so Luke is combining a past life with a current interest to talk about Dom Perignon and the production of champagne. Luke. Imagine you're in the French wine region of Champagne. Surrounded by decadence, a vineyard owner holds a glass, and they mutter, as all Champagne owners did in the early 1600s. Now, I don't know a lot of French, so I'll use a French word here, see if you can pick what it is and what it means. Where the mud did these bubbles come from, and how the mud do I get rid of them? Uh, murder's friends for shit. Um, of all the massive embarrassments in wine, none are matched for reversal of fortune as the story of Champagne. For hundreds of years, Champagne was a farming area. Then someone got the big idea that they could com uh, compete with Burgundy and take over the table wine market. They are closer to Paris and being just a little bit north of Burgundy shouldn't make that much difference to the growing conditions. As a result, Champagne was planted to Pinot Noir and uh, Chardonnay, the main grape varieties of Burgundy, and production was set to increase. Things were going okay. The bubbles that Champagne are famous, is famous for today were not quite evident early on. Oxidative handling was releasing the CO2 gas and, uh, as, and because wine was transported, eggs used and, and ill-fitting cork were allowing the gas to escape. Then bottles started to get used as a quality control, and these weren't great bottles. Have you ever seen those wicker baskets around bottles of Chianti, the Italian wine? That was there to uh, hold the fragile glass together. And along with better corks, pouring, putting the champagne in these bottles was making the gas get trapped inside, and bottles began to explode. This was an OHS disaster. In one year, 50% of the wine was lost to exploding bottles. And if this wasn't bad enough, bubbles were a known sign of poor wine making. Something had gone terribly wrong and needed to be fixed. Enter Dom Perignon. Born Perry Perignon, and as far as uh, names go, it's a little bit better than Tom Tomlinson, but not as funny as Neville Neville. Uh, Perry's father was a local town clerk whose family owned vineyards. At the age of 18, Perry joined an abbey and began life as a Benedictine monk. Those are the ones that wear the hooded robes, don't talk much, work long hours and are self-sufficient. Now this self-sufficient is very important. It's why the monks ran a vineyard and it's why the quality control of their wine was, very, was crucial to their survival. In 1668, when Perry was 30, he was sent to manage Abbey Saint-Pierre de Hauvillers. There, he oversaw everything, the other monks, the land renters, the wine production. He was the general manager. He was the dominus. He was the dom. He got the job on account of the purity of his taste and soundness of his head. 
Now this translates, this translates to the fact that he could drink heaps and not get all, um, Basically he was a keg on legs and he knew a lot about the drink. And he did. Uh, each vineyard is different and Dom Perignon could identify the farm of every grape from the quality of the fruit. He would also blend fruit from different vineyards to make a more seamless taste. This is a process known as assemblage, uh, and it produces something that's called a cuvee. Dom had his favourite vineyards, and to make a better wine, he would implement uh, stringent protocols on harvesting and pruning. Uh, apparently, he was very strict and stressful to work for. Uh, Perry Perignon was exacting the kind of boss you wouldn't want to work for unless you had to. And the monks at the abbey had to work there. One of the things that Don did was to remove foot treading. Now, foot treading is a process where you jump in, in a big vat with all your mates, you get some drinks, you get some smokes, you walk along, you sing songs, and you break the, the grapes up to mix them into a must. It sounds romantic, but you can imagine all the impurities that would get into that mix. Uh, fermentation would get rid of the bacteria, but uh, it's not a good starting point for wine production. So either the Dom hated the idea that his monks were having fun, or he just didn't like the, uh, the sweaty, dirty monks getting mixed in with the juice. Either way, he decided to uh, create a paddle press that would split the grapes in a more sterile environment. And this practice helped modify, this practice has been modified and adopted the world over. Um, this is roughly his 1670s, so he's m introducing a more mechanical system and removing uh, the human element long before automated checkouts. With implementations in harvest, uh, m improving blending and, the, and wine purity, Perry Perignon was able to double the sale price of champagne. He, his name became synonymous with excellence and was in fact mistaken as a pristine vineyard rather than just a winemaker. Uh, his wine also was favoured in the court of Louis XIV, the King of France. And importantly, he'd reduced bubbles and had almost eradicated them. The problem that Perry was working against was this. Yeast eats sugar. It breaks it down into carbon dioxide and alcohol. It's called fermentation. And to be fair to them, it wasn't really understood until 1857 when Louis Pasteur discovered yeast. Before this, it was just considered this magical gift of the gods. What's important here is that yeast likes uh, temperatures to be about 20 degrees centigrade. It goes dormant in colder temperatures. And since Champagne is a bit north to Burgundy, what was happening was that fermentation was starting, the yeast was eating all the sugars, but it was going colder earlier, and so the, the yeast would go dormant. It would stop fermentation, it would get bottled because everyone would think the process had been done because they've seen enough bubbling coming out of the vat, it gets sent off to warmer climate where the yeast would wake up again. It would start fermenting and needing more sugar in the trapped environment, producing the CO2, and uh, the bottles would start exploding. This is something that uh, Perry 
wasn't really in, in favour of, didn't really understand. In fact, he was trying to devise ways around it. He was trying to minimise this natural process, even avoid it. Avoiding is a bit, not really the right word, I suppose. What, he was trying to limit and control the bubbles. He was trying to make a better drink through this. People didn't so much mind the fizz, they just hated the idea of bottle, bu these bottles exploding in their hands and corks flying and hitting in, in the eyes. If you did want fizz, there was already a bona fide scientist for this. Don Perignon started work in 1668. In 1662, Christopher Merritt, a founding member of the Royal Society of England, a bottle-making enthusiast and a very stubborn scientist, presented a paper on how to purposely put bubbles into wine. Merritt showed that adding sugar into, into a wine, closing the seal, would produce bubbles. It's a process called chapitalisation, and it's exactly what champagne uses today to ensure a fizz. Perion would have been aware of this, but he didn't want to add bubbles. He was trying to remove them. And what was making matters worse that was that bottle production was improving. In the 1700s, stronger bottles that Merritt was involved in making were, were available and being used, and these would withstand that pressure of the secondary fermentation. The Dom had invented a capsule that would prevent the cork flying out. That's that kind of uh, wire mesh you see on top of bot uh, champagne bottles. This meant that more random uh, sparkling, more random fizz was getting out into the public. And so, in, uh, in 1715, Dom Perignon died. A blind man, still making wine by taste, with random extra fizz getting into the market, and soon a revolution came, around, came along and overthrew the king. Champagne was once again on the outer, and it went through some very lean times. By 1821, the abbey that the Don worked for was in financial ruin. Because the fizz was too hard for them to fight against, they started to use it as a marketable difference. And the abbey promoted the idea of the Dom as an inventor, which he was, and a discoverer of making better wine, which he was, uh, and created this quote, come quickly, I'm drinking the stars, which he never said. This was all done as a tribute to the local legend and to help sell some of this sparkling myrrh they had on hand. It wasn't until the late 1880s that sparkling champagne was made on purpose with an intended consistency. And the myth of the Dom was being used again. Mineral baths and gin and tonic waters were being served and this was considered a healthy thing, so why not champagne with its bubbles? After all, it was an all-round remedy good against depression, appendicitis and typhoid. And it followed logically that the French would use champagne to improve the courage of their troops in World War I. Later, the Don was used to promote fizz in America at the end of Prohibition. This time, there was a claim of a 250th anniversary of his invention. And uh, they highlighted the historical link to the French uh, royalty and Dom Perignon's name became a brand on a high-priced champagne. All of this advanced the idea of champagne as a luxury item 
that was devised by a pious monk and that would make you happy and healthy. And so today, bubbles are sprayed out in celebration. Who cares if you break a few bottles? Just send it around and enjoy yourself and have a party. In fact, you could imagine a modern-day champagne owner holding up a glass of bubbles and saying, we love the murd out of this. Bless the murd for Dom Perignon. <laughs>